energy levels very low today. Oh, I'm Oh, Jesus. Dan's chewing gum in the microphone. That Fact an air of professionalism. Starting. Yes. Professionalism. Now. Start now. <laughs> Excellent. Podcasting. How do we do this? Welcome to the show, everyone. <laughs> this is usually... Jack usually takes up the role of doing a vague introduction. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Welcome to the show, to your nightly uh, news podcast. Uh, <laughs> it's me, your host. Yeah, exactly. Oh, man. I am exhausted. I don't know what's going on. All my plants are dead, so maybe it's just depression. What are you going to do? It's morning. It's morning. morning, the plants. I also lost plants in the heat wave today yeah. with doing the, doing it's, like it's, yeah. <laughs> it's about the same te- temperature it's been in the past week yeah well yeah. i'm just yeah i don't know my advice has always been to people out here like unless you really feel like you need to just don't water things but i feel like that's wrong and i didn't water a bunch of my seedlings and now they're all dead so you know what you're gonna do such is life life and death i must put myself at ease with the death of my leaks you're gonna do such as mm, life they can go in the compost you're in the compost yeah exactly <laughs> oh man you know what's good compost? The around again <laughs> I, my rhubarb plant is like i what am i gonna do with rhubarb i still have rhubarb from like a year ago in my freezer so i'm just never gonna use it the leaves they get enormous you just put them in the compost Jack's, just Jack's like... rhubarb is next to his compost bin. <laughs> yeah. it's basically leaching all the nutrients from your compost bin so you exactly. might as well just put it back in the compost i did try to kill the rhubarb plants many times about a year ago and it's just not dead so whatever it's just gonna stay there we had the rhubarb plant sitting in our garden in a small pot for most of last year and multiple times it nearly died in droughts and not having been watered and heat waves pestilence and it would keep coming back it would grow some leaves and they die back and it would grow yeah. some new shoots and we just managed to keep it alive and i put it in the ground sort of like august or september time last year and it what seemingly died immediately <laughs> Well, and you know. I've subsequently like put a new bed over the whole place where it was, and then suddenly the rhubarb was coming through in the middle of my bed. So. Oh, well, yeah, that's the thing. I don't know rhubarb. Got my unkillable, own. unkillable, but also like if you try and grow it, it'll die. Yeah, so, you know. What are you gonna I'm do? not even sure I like rhubarb. So yeah, me neither. Why? Yeah, well, I tried to kill it, so there you go. Um, <clears throat> a lot going on, I guess, in the world, but. As you know, dear listener, isn't really that kind of show. So I don't really know if we, there's anything to bring up. Things are still not great. Kind of just like this slow fall towards anybody's guess. Who knows? Socialism, why not? We'll say that. Um, but uh, yeah, we're here to give you the upbeat news. We're here to give you some feel-good stuff. We're here to talk all about the extremely serious threat of global avian flu, and that's what we're here to pick everybody's hopes up about. Now that everyone's kind of forgetting about the pandemic, although you know what's weird, I will say, is I feel like now I know more people who have COVID than like any point during the pandemic before. Uh-huh. It's like all of a sudden I just know a bunch of people with COVID, so... Maybe it's not done. Maybe it's not done yet. Or maybe this is the sign of it being done. I mean, COVID is not done. Maybe the pandemic is. Yeah. It's just just here now. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's the two years gradual slow arrival of COVID. (laughs) Oh, God, Jesus. It's made it. I, uh, yeah. Well, to let everybody know, today we read a whole book. Wow, look at us. We read um, Social Contagion by Chinese Collective... I don't know, Schwang. They're a very interesting group of people. Don't really know too much about them. Um, they write a lot of journals that are very, very good. Um, this book is a collection of four essays centered around the topic of COVID-19 and about the Chinese state and about organizing another pandemic in a couple of interviews. Um, we'll probably focus mostly on two of those, but um, 
I started reading this book a little while ago and I got halfway through the first essay and was like so depressed that I had to stop. I was just like, oh, uh, wow, I didn't realize things were this serious. I like knew of like vaguely how some of these pandemics got started, but like really making that connection to capitalism and to like, um, yeah, microbiological class warfare as it's uh, called in this uh, book. Uh, yeah, freaked me out a bit. Yeah. yeah, I had my first moment of existential <laughs> dread when I got to the the paragraph heading for the second section, which is entitled The Production of Plague, <laughs> oh, which God, aside yeah. from being almost certainly a cannibal corpse album, <laughs> uh, also, as I say, sort of just like that collection of words uh, in the order sort of filled me with some of uh, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, and I think, yeah, I started reading it right as, like, I think maybe the locked, it looked like we're going to get no more lockdowns. That's, like, right when all the governments were like, no more lockdowns, we're on the other side of it. And everyone was kind of like, okay, we're definitely not on the other side of it, what are you going to do? And then I read this, and I was just like, oh, it's just going to be an ever-present threat. And then I started remembering, like, that's right, when I was in high school, there was, like, the swine flu, and, like, our school shut down two weeks early for summer because just everybody had it. Oh, that's right, there have been, like... There was like SARS, there was MERS, there was, and then it's just like, oh my God, like the next one's, anyway, <laughs> we'll get, we'll get, we'll get to all of that here in a bit. Um, suffice it to say, up top, I really enjoyed this. What did you think? Other yeah. than that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's a, an excellent book, uh, mm. very easy to read, uh, but also rich in first-hand accounts, but also um, excellently sourced data and um crafted into a compelling narrative which is easy to follow and um i feel uh very much more illuminated yeah <laughs> for better or for, for worse for having read it uh <laughs> particularly for having read the first essay really which covers covid19 to some degree but also like uh plagues and pandemics in general and um how they're generated and how they come about and how uh the growing uh i suppose reproduction rates of capitalism is also accelerating a growth and reproduction in new and more threatening oh pathogens <laughs> and potential pandemics oh my god yeah uh intrinsically linked these two things mm. um and it's interesting we'll get into the kind of the history of this as well but they make the point that like this was particularly chilling to me they said that there's a line that was something along the lines of um, plagues are the shadow of capitalist production, but they're also very much the, like, harbinger of capitalism. And it's just like, oh, cool. <laughs> oh, great. Just, like, if there... We might have to go back and re-tinker um, with our chaos gods' uh, political compass, because perhaps Nurgle is just, like, that's just capitalism manifest. Just rot, decay, just, like, everything horrible. It's just capitalism... Yeah, as we'll get into, uh, thrives on the production of these plagues and almost like, of course, plagues don't exactly help accumulation, but um, the things oftentimes that do help accumulation produce plagues. So there's this connection that we'll get into that's just uh, not exciting. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, capitalism is decay and recomposition. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, it's the transfers of energies and and all the rest. And it's like decay and decomposition that yes. I don't know, produces new and uh, 
Novel things. Novel things. We love novel things. <laughs> novel viruses. Novel viruses. Yeah, so I guess let's get into it. And I guess we can start with the way that a lot of these influenza and... Um, I'll be honest, I don't actually really understand the difference between, like, a lot of the different viral categories, influenza or, like, coronaviruses or et cetera, et cetera. Regardless, the way that a lot of these flus and viral strains um, are produced under capitalism currently. And it's interesting because they can you can kind of trace, like, you know, everybody is always like, oh, you know, why are all of these damn plagues coming out of China? All of these, uh, you know, the Wuhan flu or whatever, they're always coming out of China. It's, uh, what is it? It just must be that these people, and then, you know, it just gets into pure, like, idealist, like, racism. These people are dirty, the wet markets, all of this stuff. But Chuang here is basically saying that, like, not only is China, like, an intrinsic part of capitalism, and their productive mode is capitalist, but, like, all of these, the reason that these plagues are coming perhaps from, like, areas like Wuhan, um, have very material reasons why, which, like, yeah, you know, like, surprise, surprise. They can also say, like, when you have, throughout history, different areas of mass industrial production, um, that's where the flus come from. I think they also said that, like, nobody knows 100% where the Spanish flu came from, but that, did they say something about, like, it might have actually started in, like, Oklahoma or something like yeah, that? Kansas, I think Kansas, yeah. Kansas, yeah. Yeah, I think yeah, the general yeah. consensus is perhaps that it did start in the United States. Thanks a lot, Kansas. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They do draw some interesting parallels between the uh, Spanish mm. flu and the coronavirus, COVID-19. Yeah. Um, then we'll get onto those, I suppose. But, yeah, you're quite right to say that they do a very excellent job of countering those kind of narratives, as you say, like... Um, it's sort of like something intrinsic about China yeah. or Eating the Chinese bats. people yeah. and their sort of cultural practices. And also they, they push back on the idea that these are novel um, sort of black swan events that couldn't be predicted. They're something and exogenous to uh, human society and to capitalism, things that can't be anticipated or expected. But in actual fact, they are, as we've been saying, like, produced by and a byproduct of it and it's no surprise that these kind of viruses are more and more often developing in the far east and in china um because that is the the place of the most intense acceleration of these tendencies mm. toward capitalism producing these viruses right like you're always they, they 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 run through the history of the development of capitalism and even the prehistory the sort of like immediate prehistory of capitalism and sort of point out it is at these accelerating points where capitalism is the most booming in its sort of like highest degree of growth where you're most likely to get these um, developments and obviously the degree of the generation of these kind of pathogens and pandemics is going to be correlated with the the how far developed capitalism is, right? Yeah. So, like, it's no surprise that at this high developed point in capitalism, the place that's the sort of like bears those contradictions of acceleration so strongly is going to be the place that produces these pathogens. Yeah. Uh, in this manner, I suppose. Yeah, and if we get into, like, exactly what that means, like, avian flus generally kind of exist, well, flus, I should say, generally find their kind of, like, reservoir for adaptation and, uh, uh, I suppose, like, creation in birds, basically. Like, usually, like, wild birds is what they're saying. Obviously, like, avian flu, that's where you get that. 
Um, and they're basically saying that when capitalist production takes over, China has obviously seen a like mass urbanization the world has never seen in an extremely short period of time. And they make the point that along with urbanization, you get a mass increase in people eating meat, like people's diets change. Uh, now they're kind of just eating meat for like, kind of just like every meal, right? And um, yeah, and that kind of plays into like how these uh, different like influenza strains or just flu strains, viruses basically get produced in either a wild population or a mass produced, say like duck population. They say that like China produces between like 80 and 90% of the world's ducks, which is pretty wild. Um, when all of these animals are concentrated in a very small space, that's like the perfect zone for viruses to basically breed and to figure out what works and to figure out how virile they need to be, how long do they have to like kill things. And then eventually, because these farms are so close to people, and this also happens in the United States as well, where you have like mass farming next to like urban places, um, the viruses eventually figure it out and they hop to people. And that's when you have like disaster. And yeah, they say at one point, like there's an ending of one of these, it's not the ending of the essay, but an ending of one of the sections where they're like, um, one could easily see an H1N1 uh, virus killing more people than nuclear war. And I think that's like literally where I stopped on my first read through because I was like, I don't need to read this right now. <laughs> I was like, I'm trying to forget about COVID, come on. <laughs> Hopefully you weren't reading this when we also felt like we might be on the brink of nuclear war. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was just like, well, you know, Which take your pick. Yeah, know. or <laughs> climate collapse. Hey, awesome, great. Um, yeah, so yeah. that's pretty gnarly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, I think they identify like three um, uh, sort of important push factors in this process, I suppose. One of them is like the character and nature of capitalist agriculture and how the sort of like application of um, capitalist, the, the nature of the capitalist mode of production and the development in capitalist uh, production toward greater and greater production at lower and lower costs. Um, that sort of imperative has reached into agriculture and created, as you say, these sort of like scenarios, what, what we describe as like um, factory farming in a lot of ways, right? Like uh, huge number of animals forced into smaller and smaller locations where their lifespans are incredibly short because they're trying to get them fattened up and then to market as quickly as possible um and in sort of close proximity to the human beings who work there but also as you say with the urbanization in china you also get the like the urbanization of the meat production goes along with the urbanization of the mm -hmm. population um and then you get this sort of terrifying evolutionary imperative which is okay these creatures that we're breeding in are living shorter and shorter lives so we need to accelerate the process by which we are able to we yeah i was gonna say we <laughs> you mean the viruses <laughs> talking about viruses in the first person <laughs> takes off his mask yeah. just a dna strain of a virus <laughs> yeah great uh, <laughs> there is an evolutionary push factor for uh the development of more and more um i forget the right word viruses which spread more easily mm. by virtue of the nature in which we are keeping these animals and the environments in which we are breeding them i suppose that's just it's so hideous because it's just like this mass like yeah okay jack the vegetarian coming out here but like this like mass brutality towards animals is just like paid back many fold by just like this like disgusting horrifying act you've seen you know videos birds getting debeaked or whatever and just like stacks of birds and like a warehouse a mile long and then it's just paid back and just mass plagues it's like ah oh, 
Great. Brutality and then just pestilence. Awesome. That's the good world. Yeah. And it's crazy because they make the point, too, that like the hopping point, it's really hard for a lot of these viruses to go from birds of any kind to humans. Like they're just, for whatever reason, the DNA or whatever is just not adapted to do that. But it's really easy for them to go from birds to pigs. And then once they adapt to being in pigs, it's really easy for them to go from pigs to then humans. Mm -hmm. And another crazy part about that, too, was I feel like you're about to get onto this, but it's another factor in all of this is the ecological destruction, God, which goes along with all of this, which is uh, the imperative to accumulate take down all basically like unproductive land, um, destroy all natural habitats, which causes, uh, I almost said feral birds, I guess, just like normal birds, birds that like live their lives. What's the word that I'm looking for? Wild? Wild, <laughs> thank you, yeah. Wild birds that, you know, would live in these natural habitats. Now they have to basically, in their migrations, go and land in, say, duck ponds that are open-air duck ponds where there's mass factory farming of ducks. They go there and then they infect all of these poor ducks with, like, influenza, the new hot strain of influenza. Those ducks give it to the pigs, the pigs give it to humans, and it's just this horrible cycle of, like... New farms destroy habitat, the habitat then, yeah, oh God, it's just like, it's karma in just like its worst possible way. It's so brutal. The the section in this book on pigs was really terrifying. <laughs> it's quite a short section. But yeah, he, they put, they, they give the statistic that apparently 50% of the world's population of pigs are in China. Um, so there's not a surprise that like this vector uh, it contributes so heavily to the production of viruses there. Yeah. Kind of thing. Um, and they talk a little bit about all the several like strains of uh, the v various versions of the H1N1 virus kind of thing, which they've identified in pigs as potentially uh, deadly viruses should they make that jump. So there are a fair few sort of floating around that we're aware of that like, yeah, might uh, make that might transition make that jump at, at any point. point. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. You're yeah, you're right to like. Um, bring up this process of the incursion of human settlement into otherwise previously like wild natural environments kind of thing and they sort of make the point that like this distinction doesn't exist anymore between the natural world and the human world um, there is no part of the world which is free from capitalist expansion anymore sort of nature doesn't really exist mm. um, and the two are lumped on top of which of one another, and there are sort of feedback mechanisms going on now, where like, um, which again are sort of leading into this spiral of like greater and greater production of viruses. Yeah. Um, yeah, and that process seems to be twofold, right? Like you've got human beings encroaching upon these otherwise wild places, but then also the populations of those, the the animal populations of those previously sort of like unspoiled wild places are then being forced to migrate into other areas where there's this new mixing of species going on because of this push factor of capitalism which is leading to um, new combinations of uh, biology microbiological uh, processes uh, <laughs> um, and then also they make an interesting point that I think we've sort of come across in other episodes that we've done whereby there's just this like degradation of uh, diversity mm. of ecological environments mm. and that sort of like destruction of the diversity. Um, and I, I, well, I, just, I don't know whether it's fully um, explained in this essay, but it made me think of when we've talked in the past about um, 
ecological niches mm. and when you have disruption in ecosystems and these kind of like niches open up uh, spaces for new viruses that wouldn't have otherwise had opportunity to spread because it would fill some of those niches kind of thing. So there's just this general disruption of an ecosystem has loads of different consequences that mm. uh, we're not, well, we are experiencing or, or we are positioned to experience, but we're making no preparations for, I yeah. guess. Yeah, when you said that, that made me think also it's just like a kind of like love requisite variety protecting you from disease and pestilence right because it's like when there is this high level of like genetic variance and just like ecological variance in the world it makes it very difficult for viruses to just go you know duck pig human right um there are kind of like these layers of protection so that's very gnarly and another part of this ecological destruction element too is if there wasn't like enough compounding just the like mass production of pestilence and plague is um when people are pushed to the periphery. So basically like when old peasant land or take lands are taken over, this happens in India, this happens in China. Um, people are pushed further and further out to the periphery where say they might have a, like a little small plot of land um, on the edge of like the wild or something like that, right? Um, slightly less touched nature. Um, and that kind of like forces them to like engage in what they call like hunting for bushmeat sometimes right which is just like another horrible way to like protect yourself against against viruses is by forcing people to eat like things that perhaps we shouldn't be eating just like bats out of the wild or like you know like flying squirrels or something um this happens all over the world it isn't just like a uniquely like you know chinese thing or something like that and of course it is part of this bigger whole which is the need to accumulate in capitalist production so yeah, yeah. they sort of come on to the, what we've described so far is sort of like a general theory for the process of the production of these viruses, but they do sort of touch on um, what we know or what we're able to speculate about the possible origins of COVID-19, right? Mm. And there's like yeah, this is all lots of discussion around obviously Chinese wet markets and the transition from bats to human beings or... I think it's now erroneous. I've never actually Say Googled. I've never, even, I've never actually Googled what a pangolin looks like. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, what was I going to say? I thought you were going to say the lab leak. Theory. Oh, no. We are going to. We need to talk we'll get about to the, the lab, lab leak. leak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I was almost going to jump in with that straight away. But now we'll do this. We'll do the. We'll do the serious. Although it is interesting how much of this kind of like has one toe in the gnarly conspiracy theory world mm. kind of thing. But we'll, anyway, we'll get into it. We'll get into it. <laughs> Um, but they, yeah, they make they they. Um, so it's another aspect of this, like pushing back against this idea of like, ooh, the backwards Chinese like mm. eat all this like yeah. w- strange meat from these like wet markets. What is a pangolin, yeah. you know, kind of thing. Um, <laughs> which is just to say, too, just to jump in, it's even more absurd because it's like, why couldn't they just eat like us? Which is just steaks and burgers and pigs and ducks. And it's like, wait a minute, where do you think all that's coming yeah. from? It's just like, oh God. yeah. One of the things that I wanted to point out when you were talking about the like horrific conditions in capitalist agriculture is to sort of and you were talking about like vegetarian kind of thing like um (laughs) me also the vegetarian like comes in with the idea that like you get this sort of like sanitized display of meat and it's like nice polystyrene wrapper and it's cling film (laughs) contrast that with like the sort of reality of that production kind of thing which is just like disgusting and horrific yeah and just yeah yeah, anyway 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 Let's just go full, like, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> I wanted to slip into like the vegan propaganda podcast, right? This is a vegan podcast now. Like, we only listen to Earth Crisis. Yeah. We talk about, yeah. 
I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Protect the I still think there's something kind of cool about like straight edge vegan punk. But, it is very cool. Yeah, yeah. It is very, very cool. Anyway. Always the angriest people too, which I find very funny. <laughs> I wonder why that is. <laughs> um, so their superior diets give them like yeah, exactly. the energy necessary. An edge. <laughs> yeah. Um, but no, no, no. But they, they, they make the they, they, they come up with this interesting um, statistic that I hadn't realized before. Um there has been a push factor in China up toward people eating in this way. And not only is it like all of those things that we've talked about before about increased urbanization and the transfer of like um, meat production into urban environments and um, the change in the diet and the desire to consume more meat. But also apparently there was like a, some kind of virus that has been plaguing, I suppose, <laughs> the Chinese pig population, which has um, driven up the price of meat pork in particular mm. which has priced certain people out of it so that it then had to move into these other types of uh consuming these other types of meat right so not it's not this kind of like all oh, the backward chinese no 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 there is another virus some like there's a, it is currently just uh um affecting a certain animal population mm. but it is also being this push factor which is driving mm. uh the behavior of human beings and when you which get... are the result of Capitalist social relationship yeah, production. Exactly. Kind of thing. Yeah. And when you get like um, viruses just destroying pig, pig populations, the knee jerk response, as we've seen, even just when we like overproduced on pork, whatever the fuck that means during COVID, they're just culling all of these animals. And it's like, that's like actually the worst possible thing you could do because then that just makes their lifespans even shorter. And the virus goes, oh my God, I need to kill all these pigs and move on to humans. Now, right now. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> Uh, well, there's one, there's a footnote in here that I think is actually the best bit of writing in the entire book. And so I'm just going to read it in full um, because it gets into this distinction between the real and the formal subsumption oh, and great, how okay. like real and formal subsumption of labor and et cetera, et cetera, is mirrored in the microbiological realm. So they say, in their own way, these two paths of pandemic production mirror what Marx calls real and formal subsumption in the sphere of production proper. In real subsumption, the actual process of production is modified via the introduction of new technologies capable of intensifying pace and magnitude of output, similar to how the industrial environment has changed the basic conditions of viral evolution such that new mutations are produced at a greater pace and with greater virility. In formal subsumption which precedes real subsumption, these new technologies are not yet implemented. Instead, previously existing forms of production are simply bought together into new locations that have some interface with the global market, as in the case of the handloom workers, blah, 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 being placed into a workshop that sells their production for profit. This is similar in a way to the viruses produced in quote-unquote natural settings when they are bought out from the wild population and introduced into domestic populations via the global market. So that's very depressing. But another thing that that basically like hints at is how these viruses spread. Because it's one thing for this just to be like a localized thing where say like, oh, the Chinese just eating their pig and whatever, and it just stays in Wuhan or whatever. But because capitalism is this global system, um, and that's interesting because they say that like, you know, um, the bourgeois press basically like caught on to this. They just call it, you know, globalization, the goddamn globalization. That's what basically caused this COVID to become a global threat to everything within like a couple months, right? It's interesting because throughout the book when they're doing interviews and stuff, they talk about um, the pace of the virus in China. And for some reason, I kept forgetting that like this is where it's produced. 
because they're talking about like the lockdowns beginning in say like January or in like late 2019, I suppose. But it's like, man, like that stuff only really started out here, like in the UK in uh, March. So it's like, that was really only like two or three months that it took for this semi-localized viral population to spread across the entire planet, right? Um, particularly brutal and really interesting, basically, the way in which they say that like these um, natural plagues that are bought in from, say, like the wild parts of the world into capitalist markets mirror real and formal subsumption because you have that. And then you also have like the production of new capitalist plagues, not just these like, I don't know, like monkey plagues or something that are going on in like the ape population. They're like new factory farming that is just like... <sighs> Yeah, real subsumption of plagues. What a horrible, <laughs> horrible idea. Before you used the phrase something like mirror of the microbiological realm or something, and I was trying to work out what genre of music would have an album entitled <laughs> mirror of the biological realm. Yeah, everything that we talk about is just like a vaguely tool related. Yeah, <laughs> yeah definitely a tool album. Sure. <laughs> uh, um. Yeah, and then the other, the other, I suppose we could do it. The other origins theory that they discuss is the sort of like Ugh. lab origins, the lab leak, um, which they pay some credence to. The sure. ver the version of it, which is okay, research was being done into mm. uh, potential new sources of uh, uh, coronaviruses that might jump to human beings, and this process of developing them, them yourself to work out what the possible pathways for its development might be and then it being an accidental leak in that regard. Mm -hmm. um, which they which they say is like a possibility. And they have a lot to say, obviously, about the sort of like the nature of the Chinese state and the failings in oversight in some of these processes. So they would sort of, which is obviously like a capitalist problem, right? So they would blame capitalism in that regard, if it was indeed the fact that this was the origin point for this virus, but also they say, well, the only reason why this research is being done is because exactly, there is yeah. this looming threat of yeah. um, zoonotic transfer of viruses, i.e. from animals to human beings. Mm. Um, and this this work wouldn't be, done, be, be being done if this wasn't a natural yeah. characteristic or a sort of inherent characteristic of the capitalist mode of production and yeah. its intersection with the natural world, the yeah. microbiological realm. And there's a reason that that place is in Wuhan. Too, yeah. Right. It's because Wuhan also has like large industrial factory farming, which is also, again, what makes it impossible really to like tell where this uh, plague came from, which is extremely depressing. It was funny. We talked about this like a couple months ago. And we were kind of like laughing about like the possibility of the lab leak. And then we were like, but it is actually kind of weird that like, they yeah, were studying yeah. this there. Like, that is actually kind of weird, but it does make sense. Um, they basically just come to the conclusion of, like, we're not going to really know specifically where this came from, probably. In all likelihood, it was due to factory farming, something like that. There's, like, a 1% chance it could have been a lab leak. Regardless, all of these theories basically are symptoms of the same disease, which is, right, like capitalist production. Yeah. So it doesn't really matter. But, yeah. But also, it's it's worth saying that, like, don't put too much stock in the lab leak yeah. rather theory, because even if that is the case, there's still the first SARS pandemic, there's exactly. still MERS, there's still swine flu, there's still the sort of continued outbreaks of Ebola in Africa, <sighs> like, all of which are, like, uh, 
other examples of this sort of like obviously this is a like looming threat of various types of bird flus like bird flus yeah i refuse yeah. to believe that a camel could give somebody a flu isn't that what happened with mers yeah camels? i think so yeah, that yeah, sucks yeah, yeah, man yeah. i thought the camels were cool yeah apparently not not the camel's fault <laughs> it's true <dry. laughs> for our camels dromedaries what a funny word <laughs> Um, to, yeah, to kind of go back to talk about the formal subsumption of these plagues about capitalism, kind of like, I suppose I'm going to give an example of Rinderpest, which was probably the most depressing example of all of this. Um, this is kind of like where perhaps formal and real subsumption kind of start to blur together uh, to me with the like Rinderpest pandemic, because basically Rinderpest was, it started out kind of comically. It was, uh, an Italian attempt at, uh, colonizing a part of Africa, which they failed at, which is quite funny. Take that, Italy. Um, but basically, they introduced Rinderpest, right, to, uh, I believe, like the Horn of Africa, yeah. East Africa, around there. Um, this basically led to uh, a huge die-off of the local pastoral populations of cattle, which are what the pastoral people of sub-Saharan Africa basically like relied on. There were pastoral communities that killed between like 80 and 90% of all cattle in sub-Saharan Africa all the way to South Africa, which is insane. Um, And then this just had like a huge cascading effect. Um, It basically made it so that cows weren't grazing as much. So a bush called thorn bush, thorn brush, something like that, started to grow in insane uh, quantities all around sub-Saharan Africa. Um, this led to the perfect habitat for the tsetse fly, which then carries huge diseases and then just as basically more or less kind of continued to wreak havoc on the human population. Um, and this basically just because the human population was so depleted because they, A, didn't have enough food from their cattle, and B, were suffering from these diseases brought about by the tsetse fly, uh, this just made colonization that much easier for different European powers. And so it's like this horrible cyclical pattern of... Uh, yeah, burgeoning capitalist production, imperialism, all coming together in this, like, awful, awful pattern of just disease, decay, destruction, and death. <laughs> it's just horrible. As if the, like, literal brutality of imperialism, a bunch of Italians trying to, like, go on, like, a jaunt to go kill a bunch of Africans, as if that wasn't bad enough, you get this. It's just yeah, horrible. Yeah, that chain of cause and effect in that particular case would be comical if it wasn't yeah, horrific. Right? Exactly. I was just reading through it and was like, what? And then that happened, yeah, and that happened, that happened. And from this initial effort at colonization, it sort of like spurred on this chain of events, which eventually made the colonization of that part of Africa all the more easy for mm-hmm. the sort of European powers because mm-hmm. of that. Um, yeah, and this is what they mean by plagues being a harbinger of capitalism Mm -hmm. because it's very much the same thing of um the plagues that killed off you know if we take the eduardo galliano like tens and tens and tens of millions of people in the new world bought you know smallpox etc etc and jared diamond like classic like bourgeois guy he even talks about this as like because uh there were so many more um domesticable animals in european societies and the only one in like the americas by this point or colonization was more or less the llama, and that was really only in Peru. There was much more um, disease, just kind of like low-level simmering in European societies, and then once they bought that over to the New World, it just destroyed everything. So again, plague acts as this harbinger of uh, brutality, the brutality of capitalist accumulation and capitalist production. Um, And now all those different parts of the world, now that they are formally subsumed, are producing their own plagues, (laughs) which is like, oh, yeah, it doesn't stop. Great. Awesome. Yeah, they they introduce a sort of distinction or two um, 
phased approach to this understanding of the production of plagues by capitalism. And it sort of mirrors, I suppose, your formal real, the introduction of formal real into the discussion, because they sort of talk about there being like a, a process which is related to col colonization and the imperial project, which is the one you've just described, which is like uh, imperial powers transferring viruses um, two parts of the world with their, which then facilitate this process of colonization and then they say there is this sort of like period of the capitalist production of plagues proper i suppose mm. which kind of starts with the spanish flu is the first one yeah. that they start to talk about um but just jumping jumping back a little bit they sort of introduce this idea i mean it's a, it's a bit of a it's not quite a vault fast but like they talk throughout the beginning about how all of the push factors that are brought about by capitalism which produce these viruses and then they sort of wheel back a little bit and say it's not necessarily just capitalism but kind of like the the sort of urban slash agrarian sort of intersection of the urban mm. and the agrarian which finds its roots really in the origins of civilization itself which is the the beginning point of this sort of cascading uh, process <laughs> we find ourselves at the sort of like high point of or present high point of or mm. on the cusp of the high point of it's both <laughs> we want to be particularly doomy yeah. about our let's say we're on the cusp. prospects so yeah as you say as you allude another another case against civilization <laughs> I'm getting closer. Last week we talked about following Jack Kamen into the woods. I'm getting closer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This was in the book we should have read. We need to stop reading this left yeah. stuff. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, either we, we read some Jack Kamen next week, then <laughs> oh, we no. read some primitivism proper the week after that, and then we, we, then we, get back to we burn our microphones and we <laughs> yeah. go and live in the woods without electricity, I suppose. Yeah. Oh, God. Um, no, 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 no. We'll have to get back to something. No, we have to podcast. <laughs> <laughs> what would we do if we didn't podcast? What would our lives be without it? Indeed. Um, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, coming back to the Spanish flu, they make this allusion between Spanish flu and also COVID-19 in an interesting way where they're saying, well, one of the things that actually made Spanish flu really um, so deadly in the context in which it spread was like, um the sort of like growth in the urban population and the ease with which it spread and a general degradation in the general health of the population and also the provision of healthcare yeah. kind of thing and this applies to like 1920 early 1920s america and the spread of spanish flu or all, all over the world really but also they say very similar factors were in play with covid-19 in china in the end of 2019 the beginning of 2020 as a part of the sort of like general process that's been going on um for the past 20 or 30 years when we've had this sort of like what do they call it the sort of developmental phase development phase of uh yeah. chinese capitalism um but mostly they're like the, in the post mao era i suppose yeah. um where healthcare has been privatized you've not got the social like socialist doctors providing healthcare in the countryside anymore there has been like a general degradation in people's health and access to healthcare and then also like uh they draw this distinction between okay china produces all of the sort of like high quality consumer durables that we buy in the west but actually the the things that are produced for a domestic market in china are yeah, incredibly really substandard yeah um and are actually causing all of these different like health crises uh they make one reference to like contaminated uh baby formula milk yeah. i think which yeah. caused which killed a lot of infants and vaccines that are just fake that just kill people yeah, and yeah, yeah. yeah no regulation of these things soup that's cut with soap it's just like oh my god yeah i mean you don't want to paint like a horrible like dystopian like 
picture of China, but basically, like, the point of this book... No, we want to paint a horrible dystopian picture of capitalism. <laughs> yes, exactly, <laughs> Sorry, exactly. Sure, sure, <laughs> well, the point of this book, one of the main points is, beyond educating you about, like, the actual origins of these uh, uh, diseases, is um, talking about the nature of the Chinese state and about how it isn't this authoritarian thing, basically, because it just doesn't have the power to. But before we get into that, because that's kind of like the rest of the book, I do kind of want to go back to what you're saying about the Spanish flu and just read, again, a couple sentences that they said about that, because they say this was one of the earliest outbreaks of H1N1 influenza related to the outbreaks of swine and avian flu, and it was long assumed to have somehow been qualitatively different from other variants of influenza, given its high death toll. While this appears to be true in part, later reviews of the literature and historical... I hate this word, epidemiological research, found that it may not have been that much more virulent than other strains. Instead, its high death rate was probably caused primarily by widespread malnourishment, urban overcrowding, and generally unsanitary living conditions in the affected areas, which encouraged not only the spread of the flu itself, but also the cultivation of bacterial superinfections on top of the underlying viral one. So again, all of these things have their root in, like, the necessity to accumulate and, like, the divide, obviously, between the classes. Um, and they just stack on top of each other in a really horrible way. And, indeed, exactly as you're saying, this is uh, true all over the world still to this day because it's not as obvious, perhaps, in, say, America or even, like, China, honestly. But um, in reality, the, like, poor infrastructure, they say something about how, like, you would assume China would have this incredible healthcare system, right? Because communist China or whatever, but like actually it's pretty shitty and it's mostly privatized. And doctors, in America, doctors get paid like a disgusting amount. They get paid like 300K a year or something like that on average. In China, it's like very, very little. I forget the exact number, but it's uh, well below 100K. I think it's like in the 30s or something like that. And um, you constantly have like, when there are large bouts of industrial action in China, which are relatively rare, at least in the last few years, um, they tend to come from actual like doctors and nurses and people like that. Suicide rates are really high among doctors and nurses. They are overworked, underpaid, um, et cetera, et cetera. And it just speaks to, again, like on top of the bad regulations around vaccines and around medicine and all of this stuff, just a very bad infrastructure for um, taking care of people, which is depressing. And of course you see that in America, you see that everywhere. So... Not great. It's another thing that stacks on top of the original, like, productive machine that is, you know, the capitalist plague machine, but yeah, it's not great. Um, yeah, so that was basically the first essay. Um, I don't know how much more there is in it to get to. Um, really would suggest at least reading that one. I think all of these are available for free on Chuang's website. If you, so if you just Google social contagion or whatever, you can probably even find a PDF. Um, might even put that in a Discord if we find it, perhaps, maybe, but also go in buy this book. Show notes, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, the next two were a little, there's, I don't have a whole lot to say about them. Um, the next one was all about worker organizing under the pandemic. And basically what I took away from that was them just saying that there wasn't a lot of worker organizing. Um, part of this had to do with pure luck because a lot of the the first lockdown occurred around the time of the Lunar New Year, which is basically like people were already home. People had already stocked up on a bunch of food. They're more or less just told, takes more time off. And, you know, don't worry about it. Things will be fine. So there wasn't a lot of class resentment there. Um but they say that there were, like, uh, some sanitation worker strikes because they had to keep working, although things were actually just kind of the same for them throughout the entire time. Um, and also, I believe there were, like, delivery worker strikes. Um, 
But one of the another main point that they make is that in 2008, during the financial crisis, um, a lot of people were able to. There wasn't a lot of industrial action then because people were able to fall back on savings that they had. And they're saying that now that we're kind of like quote unquote coming out the other end of the other side of the pandemic. Um, People don't have those savings anymore. They've been wiped out in the last 20 years or something like that. Um, my math's wrong, but what are you going to do? Um, and they're saying that, like, now this kind of points towards, like, simmering resentments. And they use this metaphor throughout the book of, like, um, the plague, like, I think one of the essays is called, like, uh, illuminates, uh, the plague illuminates the great unity of all things under the sun or something like that. So they've used this metaphor of like, this plague has actually shown how things really are. It's going to lead to an increase in industrial action and an increase in class tensions. And it's also shown that the Chinese state is like this uber capitalist. Um, it's not technocratic, but it's just like brutally uh, capitalist and it's functioning. So if there's anyone still hanging on to the notion that like China is like this great communist country where everything's good, man, and they're like so close to just doing communism, just give Xi like just a couple more years, man, it's not true. And China is actually, like, ultra-capitalist. And this plague has, like, illuminated that, which is not great. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the things they talk about right at the end of the Social Contagion essay, um, and one of the things that initially I was a bit suspicious of and didn't really understand is this illusion made between the Chinese response to the outbreak of COVID-19 or the sort of central state response, I suppose, because there were myriad responses and they mm. were quite disjointed, which is one of the things they focus on quite a lot is the sort of like disjointed nature of the response and the sort of like, which stems from the sort of fragmented authority and sovereignty structure of like this sort of various levels of decentralization within Chinese government, I suppose. Um, but one of the things they talk about is the response from the central Chinese state as being a sort of dry run for some kind of counterinsurgency. Yeah. Initially, I was very like, I don't really know what the, what the relationship yeah. to this is. It's sort of like it's another area where it's sort of like tiptoeing into like Western conspiracy theories about this stuff kind of mm. thing, pandemic and all this kind of thing. <laughs> um, but it was interesting that really the point they were trying to make was that the response looks like a counterinsurgency because it's kind of like, okay, something has popped up here. We need to quash it here kind of thing there's not like one systemic approach there's not one sustainable attitude toward managing this pandemic but it's very much like we're going to be incredibly heavy-handed in the places where it's needed at the times when it's needed and you sort of still see it going on two years later still pursuing this mm. kind of zero covid strategy they're still having lockdowns kind of thing um but what they're saying is actually this is a hallmark of the weakness of, it's not necessarily the weakness, right? Because they have the strength to do this stuff, but it's like the uncoordinated nature yeah. of the capitalist state or the state in China, I suppose. Um, and it, it has to resort to these tactics because it slips into this dire situation where that's the only resort. And also they sort of try and suggest that what has been revealed in this process is the weakness um, of the Chinese state to the population in China, I suppose. Um, and they're making an illusion here in sort of like 2020, early 2021, that like this uh, realization might be pivotal going forward kind of thing, this realization that like um, the Chinese state is potentially incompetent in some regards, and mm. there's looking forward toward, not looking forward to, but looking towards potential like... Uh, Communist insurgencies, communist revolutions, communist political projects, um, 
this experience needs to be borne in mind, I suppose. Mm. How is the state able to respond in this pseudo counter insurgency way, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, they get into all the stuff about like the QR codes, man, and they can track sure, you wherever yeah, you are. Yeah, yeah. But then it's funny because they take a like very simplistic approach where they're like, okay, well, if they're tracking your phones, like the reason this didn't work for a lot of like foreigners coming in and out of the country telling them like, hey, you need to like isolate or like you're on like red level, you know, like stay in your apartment. Because people are just take out their SIM cards when they leave the country and stuff like that, yeah, which yeah, is yeah. very fun. That yeah. speaks to like the uncoordinated nature of the state. There's another really funny part. I think it's in the... In the fourth essay in this, they're talking about like initially they start by this this general theory of like the the nature of the Chinese state and how it relates to its like pre capitalist history kind of thing. But they sort of get into the sort of nitty gritty of the organization of uh the police and the sort of like uh repressive arms of the state. And they sort of make this analogy to uh surveillance technologies and methods used in america and they're like well the fbi and we, the national security agency or whatever are like collecting vast amounts of data and they sort of know they're sort of like storing it and they're presumably doing something with it and then they refer to this this um the, the scenario in china whereby sort of all of these fiber optic cables are tracked toward a sort of like police precinct kind of thing but it's impossible for them to actually be storing or utilizing or using that data in any way kind of thing. Mm. So like this is in reference to what you were saying about the SIM cards and the like the 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 repressive and the surveillance technologies are certainly there and there's a desire to use them and they're developing, but also they are in a lot of ways sort of incompetent or easily circumvented for now at least, I suppose. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, and it's interesting because, like, they bring up, you know, they talk a little bit about, like, a structuralist theory of the state where it's, like, the state is this thing that helps uh, capitalism, like, bumble along. It tries to counteract, like, the falling rate of profit or whatever. And sometimes it has to do the things that capitalists on their own wouldn't do to protect the capitalists. And they make the point that, like, China is, like, the ultimate form of that that we have currently because they will just, like do the things in the short term that most other governments wouldn't do that might be seen as like particularly brutal and authoritarian. So in the long run, profit just gets right back to where it was. And the pandemic's a perfect example of that because like in the short term, there was like a whiff of something going on. They bumbled it a little bit at the beginning, but then all of a sudden the order came down from like G or whatever to just like lock down Wuhan, you know, don't let anybody leave until like we know that this thing's sorted and then everybody can just get back to their normal jobs. It's gonna be really difficult for like that month or whatever. But then, don't worry, capitalists, we'll all be able to get everybody back to the factory, whatever, after that. And in the long term, you know, they say, like, the numbers or whatever have, like, spoken to how that's actually helped boost China's productivity once again. Whereas in America, they did not take that. They basically only thought about the short term. And they were like, holy shit, if we make everybody stay at home, who's going to go work at Walmart or whatever? You know what I mean? So they said, you know what? No, everybody stay at work. Okay, there'll be a lockdown. Put it up to the governors. But like, yeah, not really. Whatever. Don't really wear a mask. Who cares? And now in the long term, things are actually quite bad. And they're quite bad, actually, for a number of reasons. Bad for the capitalists, right? Because like, that's not particularly helped them with like declining rate of profit or like this horrible like pandemic that they had to go through. But it's also led to like a rise in, you can make an argument in uh, labor activism. And um, people have realized like, hey, wait a minute. If I just stayed on unemployment, like that actually makes my boss want me more and he's willing to pay me more. So they go, hey, you know, wait a minute. We actually have this power. Let's form a union at Amazon on Staten Island. You know what I mean? Whereas in China, it was like very much the state just being like, okay, everybody chill out, trust G, we're just going to do this, 
and then we're gonna get on with our daily lives, but it's gonna be very brutal for like a month or whatever. So it's, yeah, it's a very interesting view of the state there as just like the guardian of the capitalist class and China being like, yeah, this like really, really unique, I suppose, maybe not unique, but like interesting merger of just like, no state ever gets to make its circumstances as they want, right? They just do make do with what they have. And she has like been left with this state structure that's like a legacy of the 20th century. And it's just been really interesting seeing the ways in which they've been able to utilize that in a semi-uncoordinated way, but also in a way that's helped productivity in the long run. So, yeah. Related to that, one of the really interesting things in one of these essays was they were discuss discussing the degree of overlap between um, the capitalists and the capitalist class and the sort of like political ruling class of China, mm. whether it's like in the provincial level or in the sort of state central level, like every capitalist is pretty much either also some kind, well, they say that every bureaucrat is also some kind of capitalist in some way. And there's this great overlap between the capitalist class and the the CCP, the Communist Party. Um, and although they, they make the point that like, okay, yeah, of course, all states are, what's the phrase like the executors of the mm. bourgeoisie you know they run the state for the benefit of the capitalist class and for the bourgeoisie but in china there is so much overlap between the two that there's almost like a one-to-one -one yeah correspondence you can see quite clearly what is being done by these people in their own naked self-interest i yeah. guess and it allows um, for just to jump in real quick it allows for like a disciplining that you could have never imagined in america like when the chinese communist party like disciplined jack ma and was like no actually we're going to fine you and you can't file that business claptrap whatever ipo whatever acronym um you could never see joe biden doing that to like bill gates or jeff bezos right so it's very interesting yeah yeah, yeah. they also make this funny allusion to like uh, Western democracy being just sort of this, this sham facade that's sort of yeah. placed over this sort of like <laughs> this uh, this correspondence, obviously, between the state and capitalism. Yeah, far from ideal. Mm. Um, it's all really interesting. I would say for the royal listener, um, there's a lot of stuff in here about like the ideological origins of the state and about all of the different like... Um, the state building that Xi Jinping has been trying to, like, accomplish and how it's, like, this weird, like, uh, confluence of, like, old Confucian thought with, like, hey, we're also doing some Marxist things, spoiler alert, no, they're not, with, like, yeah, trying to make a, like, Chinese state that is really, really fascinating. I don't feel perhaps up to, like, talking about that fully, so I would, and it's just, like, an enormous topic. Uh, I do like the phrase uphold Xi Jinping thought. I think that's very funny. So that's what I got. We should start putting thought on the end of like, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe our thought. own names. <laughs> just, yeah. Uphold Charles Dowding thought. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think if they, there's a whole bunch of takeaways in this book. I think one of them is like, the Chinese state is something under construction. Yeah. So don't, one, don't um, claim that it's a monolithic thing that is fully developed and can be spoken of in a, as a sort of totality because one, it's in this, it's still in a sort of like historic continuity with its past and it's developing into the future, just like anything, I suppose. And then also it does have this particularly fragmented um, structure, which sort of stems all the way back to like a thousand years of history almost mm. where there's like um, a central government. Yes, but a certain amount of sovereign sovereignty is given to various different regions and this sort of like parcelization of authority has taken lots of different forms whether it's like 
through the imperial periods, through the sort of like Republican capitalist periods, through the communist periods, through the uh, cultural revolution periods, through the post Mao periods kind of thing. Like this structure has taken lots of different forms and some of the actors in it have disappeared and some new ones have come into place. But um, it's uh, a relation between the sort of like the central and the regional governance and also just like just even they they bring it almost down even to like the structure of um chinese cities and the parcelization of authority between like community groups and police precincts and private security kind of thing like everything is a lot in a lot of ways its own autonomous unit and they're under some kind of like central directive but also there's a certain degree of freewheelingness <laughs> which you you see taking over sometimes and in the sort of like in the narrative of in the covid-19 narrative it's sort of um it it and in this book it's borne out in evidence with the initial reaction of the authorities in Wuhan and the mm. sort of like province in which Wuhan is centered whereby they were like no we're going to suppress information about this kind of thing they locally took this decision no obviously we need to like cover this up mm. and then they were sort of like centrally reprimanded by that and all of these sort of like local government officials had to go out and sort of contritely apologize on television for making these <laughs> doing these things and sort of like imprisoning these sort of like quote-unquote like whistleblower doctors kind of well they were clearly whistleblowers yeah. but like, and they were clearly doctors so I don't know <laughs> quote. quote unquote doctors <laughs> 30k yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah scarf yeah uh so yeah, yeah yeah there is this um there is this structure that needs to be understood, and also mm. they also they're also one of the other takeaways is like, um, the, I think that the 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 last part last sentence last paragraph of, or the last sentence of the last chapter sort of like covers this quite clearly. They're like in the West and in the sort of like in considerations around how different forms of political theory have been incorporated into China from a sort of outside Western gaze, you could sort of say, well, they're sort of like doing Chinese Keynesianism or yeah. like Chinese corporatism, I think is the other the one. The Red talk New about. Deal. Yeah, quite, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but they're like, no, 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 like capital, Ch Chinese Chinese capitalism, the Chinese state are their own thing. Mm. Um, I think they say they're their own type of form of capitalist brutality, you know? Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. We don't need the sort of like labels of Western bureaucracy. Uh, brutality of capitalism to yeah. define what is Chinese capitalism. It is its own thing and needs to be treated as such. I yeah, suppose. well, exactly. And and this gets into a point that I think like Schwang has made in like other journals that they've put out, which is that like, don't pretend like capitalism is this global system, but then be like, oh, but China sits outside of that somehow. China's something different. China, you know, they still have the hammer and sickle. They got the red flag, so that's something different. China, like, regardless of whether it's socialist or not, it isn't obviously, duh, we know that. But like, even if it was it still contributes to capitalism in the exact same way. And you see this so clearly with the production of like plagues because it's like, oh, look at them. There we go. Another plague coming out of Wuhan. Thanks a lot. But it's like, have you looked at where like your effing pig meat comes from? Uh -huh. Have you looked where your like poultry meat comes but from? It's, but it's not even that because they make a really interesting point. They're like, if you buy any type of like consumer electronics, exactly, yeah. other sort of like cheap consumer durables in the West, those things are made in mm. these urban environments in China. And what makes these urban environments in China that produce these things possible are all of these formally described sort of like uh, push factors that are creating these viruses, right? Like yeah. anywhere in the world, if you're connected to uh, commodity supply chains in some way as a, mm. as, a, as a purchaser or as somebody who sort of like um, 
aids in the transition of these goods, you are connected to this process of the production of plagues exactly. in China. <laughs> it's brutal. And, and, it, and it's the kind of like commodity fascism that disguises that process, I suppose. Exactly. Like, you know, and, yeah. And in the second, in Chuang's second journal, they use this metaphor of like smog as being like lifted and you can finally see the like nature of the Chinese state. And they say that, you know, everyone's like, oh, you know, the smog in Beijing or whatever. But now everybody's like, hey, China is like maybe doing like good capitalism because the smog is slowly going away. But they make the point that no, the smog isn't going away. It's just going to Lagos and it's going to Dar es Salaam and it's going to other places. It's this capitalism isn't like, I don't know, it's a zero sum game, right? It's like full growth all the time, but also like somebody has to mm -hmm. have this. And when Upton Sinclair wrote The Jungle and he was talking about the horrible meatpacking facilities, you know, in like Chicago or whatever, and these poor Latvian immigrants, okay, but now everything's fine because that's not in Chicago anymore. No, now it's just in Wuhan, right? So great, <laughs> yeah, 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 awesome. Yeah. There's another thing, like quickly, like um, sort of and on the broad general themes of the Chinese state, they sort of talk about people in the West have two reactions, right? Either like... China is uber totalitarian and is like using all these repressive measures to sort of control its populace. Or in the context of coronavirus, they're like, oh, we really ought to emulate this kind of zero COVID strategy. Mm -hmm. Look at them using all of this technology in a really intelligent, clever way uh, to repress this virus. And in the context of coronavirus and this text, they're like, well, no, no, no. Clearly the Chinese state is bumbling and it's sort of like finding its feet and it does have these powers, but also it's a bit of a mess and it's sort of something that is finding its own way. And mm. expanding that out a little bit, because at the end they do sort of talk about like the myriad general threats that we face, not just like pandemics, but also the environment and um, various other environmental crises, whether it's global warming or the sort of like ancillary results of global warming. Um, they talk about, they put that in line with this idea of like the process of counterinsurgency and that sort of like type of state response, which mm. is very kind of like repressive and crushing. But also I was just thinking about it in terms of like the way people talk about um, Chinese, China's contribution to global warming. It's the same, yeah, same exactly. kind of narrative. It's like yeah. either China, terrible, burning all this coal, kind of like <laughs> investing in fossil fuels, blah, 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 blah. Or it's, oh, China... Actually, they produce the most like wind turbines or solar panels, and actually, they're doing yeah. the best job, kind of thing, in combating global warming. And it's these sort of like binaries that are sort of like blurring a sort of much better understanding of yeah. how the Chinese state works, I guess. or how just capitalism works. I mean, it's all yeah. just symptoms versus causes, right? It's like, ah, yes, let me focus on this one symptom, and once I fix that, everything will be fine. Don't worry about like the underlying problem of like. The mass production of plagues or whatever mm -hmm. just yeah i don't know what you're gonna do great great um uh we also i think i've forgotten to talk about like the most important thing in this book that the book was kind of all about which was about like the mutual aid or whatever about um so they go into all of this stuff about just to say quickly about like how the state had actually more of a bumbling not authoritarian response than you might think even though there were definitely authoritarian elements to it also what does the word authoritarian actually even mean um but then they say that, like, actually, in reality, the reason that China did have actually a huge success so far with um, containing the pandemic uh, is because of a huge amount of, like, actual self-mobilization and people, you know, doing carpool groups and people, like, in villages. The cover of this book is, like, a very funny picture of, like, a guy with a mask sitting on a chair with, like, this ceremonial Chinese, like, staff next to him. And they say that this was basically, like funny photos that got shared um, online of, like, old men going out to... God fucking damn it. Old men going out to their uh, 
front of their villages, having these ceremonial things mean like, don't come into our village. We don't want to die of COVID. And even in all of the interviews, you really get the feeling that like people were extremely serious about COVID from day one, because this is something that they've lived through before the production of these plagues. And they knew, whereas like out here, it was just kind of like a funny thing. Like, hey, now France has two cases. Hey, now England has five. Oh, you know, get those numbers up, France. Like there, they knew what this could possibly mean. So there was a very like large mobilization of people um, actually trying to like make changes and not go to work and do the whole staying home thing where there was that here, but perhaps definitely not quite to the same extent. Um, and, you know, there are definitely material reasons why for that. Like, I don't want to fall into the trap of like, you know, like the, the brave common Chinese Just person. That, like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's quite interesting. And especially in Wuhan, um, there was like this actually like very strange dynamic of a lot of people in Wuhan didn't know quite what was going on as opposed to people outside of Wuhan and Hubei and all of these different places because they say that, like, news was definitely suppressed of all of this inside of Wuhan, the, like, actual seriousness of this pandemic, but people in, like, Hong Kong, people in Beijing actually knew what was going on and they're like, damn, like, this thing's pretty serious. And it took, like, people in Wuhan communicating with their families outside of, like, that part of China to actually be like, oh, damn, this is serious. But once they did, there was, like, a really interesting... Uh, they kind of say in this book that, like, this does actually validate the anarchist idea of, like, during times of, like, you know, great uh, upheaval, there are a lot more people who are interested in cooperation than there are people playing the black market. And basically, like, one of the main reasons for that was because of this, like, limp nature of the state where it said it was going to do all these things and it wanted to do all of these authoritarian, lock the cities down, do all of this stuff. But in reality, they did that and then nobody could get food. And then nobody could travel into town to go to work once the factories opened up. So there had to be carpools and there had to be people who were relatively healthy who would go and get food and bring them to other people. So there's this really interesting, like, kind of forced communitarian response. But if there's any optimism to be bought out of this book, that's definitely that. And it's definitely, like, the dual nature of people will help each other because that's, like, the best way to survive, right? Even if you're just a total individualist prick, like, the best way to survive is through cooperation. But also, like... Don't buy into the propaganda of the Chinese state as being this, like, Orwellian, all-seeing, all-knowing thing, because in reality, it's not. It's, like, trying to be. It wishes it could be, but there's always room to organize. So, and very much we see that here, and hopefully we'll see that going forward with more industrial action, more labor movements in the future. Um, but we'll see. We'll see. You never know. I, am I optimistic? Oh. <laughs> um. I don't know what to say in response to that. All it does remind me of is like similar things that happened here around sort of mutual aid groups that popped up and like people getting people's groceries for mm. them and this kind of thing and sort of like booming people desiring to help with food banks and that kind of thing. But I'm sort of remembering maybe it was me in a knife position early 2020 just coming off the back of like Jeremy Corbyn brain or whatever. <laughs> But I definitely remember going through that period in the early part of 2020 and wondering whether this was going to lead to some kind of fundamental change in people's mm. conception around the nature of community, I suppose, mutual aid, sort of like what was necessary for life, uh, ideas around... Because we had the sort of like furlough scheme here. So there were a lot of people like who were let off doing their like crappy mundane jobs because yeah. they were furloughed and like... I wondered whether there might be some kind of response that was like, hey, what about a universal basic income? What a nice idea that might be kind of thing. Would that be analogous to this? Now, unless we don't necessarily like uh, 
champion those kind of ideas and mm. might recognize that kind of thinking as naive but I just think it funny to look back on that period and how I felt I don't know how you felt in that period about like what people thought the consequences of that might be and what we think now the reality of that experience has been for yeah. people I'm not actually sure what people have taken away from the experience of not necessarily COVID-19 but like the potential collective response the nature of the state response has people's conceptions of possibilities changed or not i don't know yeah yeah i suppose it's almost like this book has shown me that it, it, it isn't even a question of naivety naivete because when push comes to shove when things are looking like they're going to get really bad humans would prefer to survive and so <laughs> when they're forced to survive and get along and cooperate they will and when there's that option they will um, and I think that, like, if we don't believe in that, then we don't believe in socialism, right? Because mm. it's just impossible. Mm. But, um, yeah, it almost isn't a question of, like, is it possible? Is it not possible? It's like, well, it's going to happen regardless of whether you like it or not. Our job as socialists is to, like, breed that uh, state of mind prior to any kind of, like, social upheaval collapse. Because we would just like to have the nice, smooth, no class war at all transition to socialism. Damn, that's not going to happen. But regardless, <laughs> that's what we would like to happen. <laughs> Uh, Fabian Socialism. Fabian Socialism. <laughs> this podcast has a new sponsor, the Fabian Society. There is a there is um something that they say, I think maybe on the first page or in the first section of this book, they talk about communism being characterized well it will need to be characterized by what they say is fully politicized naturalism. Mm. Now I don't necessarily know what that means. <laughs> That's a nice phrase. But um, we, th I guess we think of nature as being neutral mm. and not within the sort of like political realm. Um, and it needs to be a sort of direct, um, political act to develop, a more sustainable relationship to the natural world, Absolutely. which will have to be an essential part of the communist project and also the nature of what might be a post-capitalist mode of production's relationship to nature I absolutely yeah. i mean have, Marx... that, have that at every level in absolutely. our thinking and understanding yeah yeah i mean absolutely i mean i think a lot of socialists fall victim to not doing that and it's like Marx spells it out extremely clearly when he says labor is not the source of all wealth guys nature is right up there as well and there's a tendency in socialism i think especially today to be like because we're so far away from like big labor movements like we were 100 years ago that to just like fetishize labor is just the thing that we need but it's like you know fully automated luxury communism perhaps not perhaps we need to think about the other thing which is like this healthy relationship with nature before it's too late which <laughs> is particularly brutal <laughs> Okay, I think we've gotten to the end of the podcast without having, like, open <laughs> breakdowns. Not I yet. don't know whether we're having slow ones that yeah. might... Anyway, no, 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 no. no. Um, I hope the listener is not filled with uh, dread and angst. Yeah. But once again, revivified with what might be our possible communist future. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> has some sense of, like, what that might entail and what work needs to be done and... Uh, um, Jack and I have hope. Hope, of course. Why, if you don't um, have hope, what's the point? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there will be days where I don't have hope. It's like a, a, a Cliff Connolly quote quoting Kropotkin, we talked about when he talked to him. Uh, be a socialist, because that's the thing that's going to answer most of these questions, right? Be a doctor, that's awesome, but also be a socialist, because you can do your NGO activist stuff to, like, make factory farming better. Still factory farming, right? So... 
do the socialist things, right? It'd be funny if there is like a sock dem or like a liberal listening to this and they're like, I should be a socialist. <laughs> it's definitely not happening. I don't know who I'm talking to. <laughs> What are you going to do? Anyway, with that triumph. <laughs> you know, with that triumph, uh, the pandemic did come from the lab leak. We figured it out. Um, and yeah, this is this is great. Schwann consistently puts out like really great analysis in the vein of Mike Davis, but also just like really well written, mm -hmm. really like interesting metaphors. And they tie things together really well in an easy to read way, much like Mike Davis. Mm -hmm. And he's quoted on the front of this yeah, book. Yeah. So. yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. And in a world where there's like such poor coverage of China and Chinese politics exactly, and the Chinese yeah. state and China's intersection with the rest of the world. So much mystification of these relationships, like first-hand accounts of developments in China written in English for an English audience is something that's uh, of great necessity mm. and um, they're clearly doing a great service. They're doing God's work. Pick yeah. up the book. Um, you can actually, there was a while where it was pretty hard to get, but now I think you can just get it pretty easily. Um, but again... You can probably just look it up. You can probably find a pretty good if you don't want to pay for it, but pay for it. So, uh, yeah. All right. Well, uh, oh, goodness. We, yeah. We're going to have, we're not going to have any, I don't know if we've actually talked about this. I'm going away for a little bit. So I don't think we're planning on taking any time off of actual, like, show output. We'll see. We need to sort that all out. Yeah, I mean, our show output is, like, <laughs> somewhere between consistent <laughs> and sporadic, anyway. Exactly. Uh -huh. But, um... Yeah, so you might have some more fun episodes coming up. We'll oh, see, right, like yeah. when we did some. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was we, looking up we documentaries. Might, on... We might go for quantity. <laughs> exactly. Our usual level of quality. I was looking up. Uh, I was like, okay, we did an episode where we talked about a documentary on uh, McNamara. We did one on Rumsfeld. I was like, is there a documentary out there on Kissinger <laughs> to complete the trifecta? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, we'll see. All right, well, regardless, um, this has been very fun, Dan. Yeah, I've enjoyed you. this book very much. And uh, thank you to listen. Yeah, thanks for listening, everyone. This has been a delirious statement. I've been Dan. Thank you, Jack. Thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs>